so this is my um, fledgling relationship, which was intense, but ultimately short lived um, Mm -hmm. with Dave, the Mm -hmm. uh, Instagram scammer, who sent me a message and it said, oh, hi, um, do you want to be my sugar baby? I had to obviously clarify what on earth that was. Um, I want to give you £5,000 a week. It's a good deal. A week. A week. And you don't even have to send nudes. And obviously I knew, I knew he was a scammer. It's probably not even called Dave. But we chatted back and forth and it got a bit, I don't know if you've ever come across the sort of time wasters letters, but it was that kind of vibe that I was channeling. Like whenever he'd build up to the point of being like, can you send me over your PayPal details? I would be like, oh, Doreen from next door's just vomited on my carpet. Have you got any tips for getting the vomit Excellent. out of the carpet? And Brilliant. he would just reply and say, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Send me your PayPal. <laughs> Excellent. That's really good. So he's like a very down, rate, down market version of the Tinder swindler. <laughs> When is the right time to die? Hello, I'm Nairi. And I'm Phil. We're two friends trying to answer that question. For one of us, it's theoretical. And for the other, that's me, it's all too real. In this series, we'll follow Phil's journey, living with an incurable and life-ending illness, and unpack some of the key debates around assisted dying with some help from experts and campaigners. I wanted the chance to have this discussion in the UK courts. I never got that chance, but this is my story and this is my podcast. You're looking out of a hotel window, are you, while we're doing this? Yeah, it's not very exciting. So I am in the, I've reached the heights of uh, the Premier Inn and this feels very exciting having not been in a hotel for like two years. It's actually very snazzy. I've been very impressed with the Premier Inn. Okay, that's a message from our sponsors. That's great. Thank you for getting that out of the way. <laughs> I just did a really big stretch and it's really, that's such a nice feeling when you really stretch out your arms and like sit up for a, a second. Can you still, can you stretch? Can you still stretch? Can you do that? I get stretched. Um, as in, um, and it's sort of something that's happened a bit organically because I've got a little bit of physio help and the physio does stretches on me. But and that happens for you know just every few weeks. But I've then kind of um, potted some of that down, and I get the carers to help me, um, um, particularly Carla with stretching. And so yeah, and and the interesting thing is because some of the stretches I do do on my own, Carla sits next to me, and we do like a mini yoga class together that's like five minutes long. Um, but I can only do a little bit of stretching, and the rest of it is her helping me twist the torso, or get the arms stretched back, or. Yeah, yeah. Not stretching is a bit of a pain. You know, it's one of those things. I think the body wants to stretch, doesn't it? I mean, you you did it, I guess, because you were sat in a position for 20 minutes and felt like you needed to bend your spine. It's an instinct and it's just a little pleasure. Just because you can't, presumably if you get an itch, you can't. Can you itch? No, not itching. Oh, that is torture, it Really, honestly, I've I've said to Charlotte that if we win the Euro Millions, I'm going to create a position in this household which is head of itching. Yeah. And, that's, and there's going to be a proper job description for it yeah and my my head of itching is going to be following me around everywhere with one of those scratching sticks you know one of those things with a claw on the end they're going to itch me out will 
Would you anticipate a lot of applications for that? <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. You'd have to pay handsomely, wouldn't you? <laughs> and it would need dental. Wow. Also like a minder. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. I don't know, because I just thought it would always be nice. I'd drive around in a wheelchair and I'd say to, I'd say to I don't know, my minder, that person's in my way. Could you move <laughs> on? Could you move on a little bit? You want to be like a celebrity who has sort of bodyguards. No, just a megalomaniac can get things done. <laughs> so since we last chatted, what's what's been the highs and lows? You know, I... I I don't know, really. We've just, I, I think the high has been that we've hit some kind of routine and, and generally accommodation with this stage of our illness. And almost, our, I say our illness, that's amazing, isn't it? My illness. But the um, it kind of affects us all. The biggest thing as a parent is both of our daughters are happy at the moment um, in a synchronised way, which is amazing. We went out for cocktails for my eldest daughter, Sasha's 19th birthday. Um, uh, which was, um, you know, an unusual thing for us to to actually be able to um, pull off together as a group. Yeah, and so the rest of it's usual. I'm in a caring routine. I can tell you that um, Kelly has moved into a caravan, but that's not bad because she's near her horses. Helga did well at Crufts. That's not herself. That's her deer hound. And um, Carla's got a motorbike. I'm delighted to hear Helga's news, and we, we love Helga. Um, I haven't heard about Kelly before, but she's got horses. Hopefully they won't mind you sharing <laughs> uh, the details of their life here, but I guess you've got to know them very, very well. Well, yeah, I suppose. And one thing I have to I have to guard against is it sort of becomes a big, big part of the day and a big part of your kind of social life. And it's probably not good for either party to, you know, is it at the end of the day, it's kind of a professional relationship, strangely. And I don't, uh, you know, again, that's not meant to be pejorative, but you've got to, understand the nature of the relationship as well but but there again we spend loads of time together half of the time that time I'm in the buff and um it's just we've got to rub along so to speak not literally (laughs) not literally crossing the line of that relationship yeah that would that would involve a gross misconduct (laughs) what how do you think they describe you I think they think that I'm a fair boss but a kind boss Nairi in the main (laughs) No, I have no idea. I've got, I've got no idea. I think we get on quite well. And yeah, on the ventilator front, and you know, the machine that I really, I mean, I do still hate it, but I hate it a little bit less now because, of course, I recognise it's keeping me alive And um, when I'm lying down. And um, now I've had a humidifier unit fitted to it, which I know doesn't sound, doesn't sound very exciting, but it means that they feed the air with um, uh, with kind of water vapour now. And that means I can stay on it for most most of the night, which is at first I thought that was horrifying. But at least that comes with the benefit of getting some more sleep and life with a bit more sleep is so much better than life without sleep. Can you only sleep when you've got when you're laying down? You can only sleep when you've got the ventilator to assist your breathing. Yeah, I can't really breathe lying down um, anymore. Oh, wow. I can do a bit, you know, for half an hour or an hour or something like that but it's pretty labored and it's very shallow so yeah breathing lying lying down is much harder than breathing breathing lying up sort of who knew so that transition period at night of when the bed sat back I can only talk in nods and grunts then I might relax for a little for a little bit the the muscles might relax so we can say a few words and then there's you know I plug the mask onto my face and that's a really tight fit mask it has to be tight very very tight and um and breathe for 
for for the evening for the night and the 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 humidifier bit means you can wear it longer why is it quite drying because you're not getting any moisture without yeah i found it horrendous without just awful i get an hour two hours and then just wake up and and sometimes my my honestly my mouth would be stuck together and i know that's a that's a kind of almost like a vigorous speech but it'd be so stuck together it would take me time to be able to even work my tongue wow back into position to be able to kind of moan for you know every you know make the correct noises to get some help in so you know that's um so that's now a thing of the past because um the air is coming through with moisture in it and any other bits of new kit or weird and wonderful treatments that I never knew I needed to know about. Yeah, I've got a um, breath recruitment pack, um, which is a, you know, those things that you see on like A&E programs, someone's knelt over someone squeezing a bag to try and keep their lungs going up and down. I've got an equivalent one of those just to keep my lungs exercised. And I do this with Carla. And so I have to put the mask on and she squeezes the bag four times and it effectively pumps me up. We, we laugh almost every time because I'm meant to press this um, uh, mask really close to my face. She's meant to pump the bag four times, but each time I pump up like a frog, and my and my cheeks my cheeks go out, and then and then it, then I burst like a balloon. Or so you know, I kind of I deflate like a balloon. Anyway, the whole thing actually hurts quite a lot. It sounds Carla finds it unpleasant. Carla finds it hilariously funny. So we we always end up we always end up doing this kind of giggling like children, and, and I'm somewhere I'm so, you know I, I have tears running down somewhere between the discomfort and the the lunacy of it all. I knew what Charlotte then said to me. Oh yeah, you used to do it as a kid, didn't I? Didn't I used to do that as a kid, blowing up a balloon, and then just letting it all, all go back in and really hurting. And of course, I said no. And she said well, she looked at me like I was the idiot. <laughs> in a debate with so many people with such strongly opposing views, what could be the way forward for assisted dying in the UK that works for everyone? Phil chatted to Phil Friend, a legendary disability advocate who's campaigned his whole life against assisted dying to explore that key word, compromise. Phil Friend, just, just as the sun comes out, welcome to uh, the, the podcast. Just to let the listeners know, we've already agreed that although we do come from opposite ends of an argument, that today is not about trying to bamboozle each other with facts and figures. So it's not, it's not a university debate. Um, and, and I think that kind of takes, not that I know, no, I've ever done one, but that kind of takes the, um, the pressure off you and me um, to really just talk about our thoughts and our opinions and how they developed. Does that work for you? That's exactly why I'm here, Phil. We're both Phil, so it all will get very confusing. But um, no, I'm, I'm pleased to meet you and I'm pleased to have an opportunity to talk with you about what is a very complex issue but with somebody who I know is facing this challenge personally. And in my experience, we've not often had an opportunity to do this sort of thing. I'll, we'll, we'll check in again in an hour's time to see how I feel. <laughs> you know, this is kind of a, it's an experiment. It'll either work or not work or half work. Yes. Somewhere, yeah. somewhere in between. And I've, funnily enough, I've listened to the, the way we roll your podcast and right. I've immediately clocked someone who is kind of engaging and, and a friend by name and seemingly in nature. So, you know, kind of uh, just see how it goes. And just to, just to sure. throw things up in the air and, and start them off, my, my first question to you really is to ask you to talk about the sort of life experiences that have led you to the conclusion that 
assisting assisted dying should not be allowed. Okay. Uh, yeah, why not start there? I suppose my interest in this subject is primarily um, caused by the fact that at the age of three, I got polio. I'm now in my 70s. Um, I got polio as a three-year-old. I was paralysed from the neck down. I very nearly died. Medical professionals back in that dim and distant days managed to keep me around. And then I went through 15, 20 years of procedures of one sort or another to make me as good as I could be. And uh, I'm, I always use crutches, then wheelchairs. I'm now in a powered wheelchair because as I've got older, my, my abilities have got less. So I've been a disabled person consciously all of my life, really. Having said all of that, I didn't really get involved in disability issues um, until I was in my 40s. Uh, up till then, I qualified as a social worker. I worked in a number of roles as a social worker, and then I ended up running institutions for young people who'd committed or had caused various issues. They were you know, difficult to control or, or whatever. Okay. And then I got made redundant in the middle of all that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maggie Thatcher was Prime Minister at the time and uh, resources were obviously uh, whatevered and uh, mm-hmm. I was one of the cuts. And it was at that point that I met a number of disabled people who said, why aren't you doing stuff around disability? So I set up a business and I worked until I retired a couple of years ago running training and consultancy programs for very large corporates on how disabled people could be valuable assets to their workforce and that sort of thing. So it was in the middle of that that I came across uh, Not Dead Yet UK, which around 2009, which was an organisation that was campaigning against a change in the law on assisted suicide. And uh, I took the view that this was an organisation that um, I could help, but also that I believed its uh, believed its argument, the reason, and we'll obviously get into that in a minute or two. So that's the sort of journey, really. I'm married. I have four children. I've got six hundred grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm a family man, and I'm now I'm now pretty much retired. But I do a lot of voluntary stuff still because it keeps the old grey cells ticking over. So that's that's about me, really. Yeah. So I guess you are a um, an example of. A, um, a very full and worthwhile life drawn from um, a very tricky start um, and that's had disability um, throughout. Yes, and I'd make a real distinction between you and I in that sense that I often say to people, you know, I dream in a wheelchair. I don't dream walking. It's not what I do. But I recognise that having had 70 years of being disabled, I've got a view of that which is very different from the view that you might have, given that you were minding your own business, getting on with your life as a non-disabled person. And then suddenly you had the diagnosis you got and that completely changed the world for you. And And I've had the pleasure to listen to you talk about that in, in the work you've already done on podcasts. So I kind of, I do understand that I'm in a very different place from somebody who's acquired their disability in their adult life. Yeah, and I think that's all correct and so you know, so far we're agreeing on everything. But, but <laughs> the, next, the next question I'll ask is, is how did we get here? And how, how, why is it that, you know, a disabled man who's 70, who's lived a very full life, is talking to a 50-year-old terminally ill fellow um, about, about this topic of assisted dying? 
That's a really good question in a sense, because I don't quite know how we got here. I just know that I, I, I think I don't hold any particular religious views, so I'm not being driven by a, a, an idea of the you know sanctity of life and so on, although I do believe that life is precious, of course, but I don't have a religious take on that. Um, I think what it was to do with for me was that disabled people's rights were being put at risk by the potential to change the law on assisted suicide. And I'm very conflicted over that in one sense, which is that I do believe in personal autonomy. I do believe that people should have the right to exercise things in the way they want to. And if somebody's completely paralysed and they want to die, in many ways I totally understand they're going to have to ask somebody else to help them. And as we know, you and I both know, that's illegal. Um, We have deep worries about how assessments are made about the lives of disabled people, the quality of lives. And as you've heard me say, my quality of life has been very good. Whether I'm disabled or not, I've had a very full life. I don't see myself as suffering or being a victim or any of that sort of language. Um, And I know there are people who do feel like that, but I'm not one of them. So I think my interest is always about rights and the protection of rights. And that's, I think, what uh, motivates me most around this subject. And, you know, um, Bill, just jumping in, good for you. My first thing is good for you because you've used it, you've used the C word and you've used it first, which is the kind of conflicted word. And, and you know, I've gone through this um, kind of thought process discussion that's now opened up a court case and now, and now a, 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 a small podcast series and I haven't nailed down all my thinking on this. I think it is, um, it's very, very hard stuff for all sorts of reasons. And, you know, we arrive at our positions because of our experiences. I guess what I can't understand, and I'll, t- and I'll turn this into a question really, is, you know, there's now been decades of controversy. The, the law that you referred to, the Suicide Act, is over 60 years old. Um, it's been contentious for at least 30 years of those, I, I think. And... Um, how come we've not arrived at some kind of place of compromise? I suppose for me, my answer to that question would be because what we've been asking for hasn't been delivered. I think that the idea that really high quality uh, availability, palliative care, for example, that every single person who's dying should have access to the finest care they can receive and what have we got? We've got examples of brilliant practice uh, in places like hospices, but the hospices have to raise their own finances. They're, you know, they're not funded by the government and so on and so forth. So it's there's that famous postcard lottery stuff around hospices and, and hospitals with hospices. So I think for me, just to, so that I don't bang on about it, I think palliative care has not been delivered. Social care has been systematically dismantled um, and we know what the, the crisis we're in now with social care. So two major issues that might help someone in your position think more positively about the end of their life may not be available to you, which leaves an option, which is suicide. If, if you can't feel that your death is going to be uh, peaceful and not painful and and those kinds of things, then your options are very limited. I'm absolutely with you on the, you know, the crisis in social care and 
I see it and feel it every every day and feel how thin um, the um, the the support is from legal services and even private agencies who are struggling at the moment. Um, um, it's it's really it's really tough. But then, and, and to make this very personal, um, in talking with the doctor, uh, uh, of course, a lovely and reassuring fellow, because if they're not reassuring, I'm sure they've been in the wrong job. The, um, the, on Tuesday, I kind of asked him about you know, my, what my end of life, I'm at the stage now where I'm kind of asking about my end of life options. And he said, you know, I, first question was, if I become uh, dependent on the ventilator that I'm on for a few hours a day now, what, what can I do? What, what are my options? And one of my options is to take that ventilator off. And so we talked about the circumstances of that. Someone would take the ventilator off and I would begin to suffocate and they would begin to palliate. And he said, in all likelihood, the whole thing would be over in a couple of hours. And um, and then, uh, so Charlotte, my wife, said, okay, does that mean this is something we could do at home? And he said, well, you know, probably not because... It might take longer, but at least within a day, within a period of twenty-four hours, you'd be you'd be out. And, and I was kind of partially reassured by that until until I got in the wheelchair van on the way home, and I started ticking ticking around my head. And so that, that that was one part. And then he and then I said, "Well, you know, what happens if I get to a stage where I just can't bear this anymore, and I'm kind of locked in, and it's just it's all, it's all too much." And you know, again, sort of reassuringly, he said to me. Well, don't worry. In his experience of 15 years of working with people with my condition, very few actually get to that point where they're locked in long term because they are taken by normally a pneumonia. And at that stage, I could choose not to have antibiotics. And again, I thought at the time, very, very sure. Thank you, Doc. Um, and in the wheelchair around on the way back, I'm then thinking, well, you know what? That's still me suffocating in a hospital bed as my lungs fill up with fluid over an indeterminate period of time. So I kind of looked at those and thought, they're still not within that context. It's, I've got good palliative care, but my choices are I'm going to be a victim of circumstances, a victim of how far my lungs deteriorate, a victim of just a whole set of things. I never have a real choice, really. I, I never have control. And I know control is a, a loaded word, but, I mean, control beyond a point where I don't think I could bear it anymore. And I hear that and I and I understand. Well, I don't understand because I'm not going through it, but I kind of get what you're at and what you're saying. And and having control, one of the things that's all that is so important to disabled people as a as general statement is the fact that they control their own lives. And so, you know, using personal assistance to get you up, feed you, bath you, put you to bed. That sounds like you're not in control, but if you're directing the operations, then you clearly are. They're just your arms and legs, and they're doing what they're told. You know, um, I, I think I think this that what you've just described is one of the great cruxes. And here comes my sort of my my response to that is to say that what's what's being asked then is that we change the law to enable you to be helped to die by a doctor. Uh, or prescribe drugs that will help you die, which you might administer yourself in some way. In order for us to do that, we have to change the law. And what we've seen so far is safeguards that aren't safe for the rest of us. So those of us who don't want to die might be put at risk by 
relatives or uh, unscrupulous relatives. And I know perhaps people listening to us find this very hard to believe, but age Age UK have really serious data on elder abuse and and things of that sort. So, so what we're kind of doing is balancing what you're saying, your needs are, with which I have enormous empathy, against a law change that puts potentially uh, hundreds of thousands of people at risk. And I think that's one of the big dilemmas that you and I, this conversation is in a sense about. I think you, we've just wandered into one of the really big arguments. There's the sort of two main headline arguments that come up in this debate time and time again is that kind of firstly that in enabling the law change for assisted um, suicide or uh, assisted dying, that that would be that will create a slippery slope. And the second one is that the as you just alluded to, the weak and the vulnerable will suffer. And I wonder if Phil, if we could take those one by one and. Um, if you could put, let's start with it, if we could do it in reverse, put the slippery slope kind of shorthand into words. Um, so if you wouldn't mind explaining that to, um, back to me. That yeah, I, 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 think, I think keeping it simple, the fact of the matter is the law changes, safeguards are put in place, and for the first, I don't know, year or two, let's say, those safeguards are rigorously applied and the chances of things going badly wrong for any individuals are fairly slight, so long as we've got the safeguards right in the first place. And I would like to just say at this point that we're still – that hasn't happened for as far as we're concerned. The safeguards aren't safe. But let's assume they are. What tends to happen then in the experience of other jurisdictions that have got assisted dying, assisted suicide as law is that somebody says a year or two later – Actually, there's this group over here that aren't covered by this. They aren't terminally ill, for example, because one of the classic safeguards is this person must be terminally ill with less than six months to live. Yeah. Well, this, this group of people don't have that. They don't meet that criteria. So a campaign starts to widen the safeguard, to increase it to say people who aren't terminally ill but are feeling X, Y, or Z. So before you know it, you've now got another group of people who are, uh, are wanting to die and be assisted to die. And if you look at jurisdictions like Belgium and Holland, we're now in a situation there where children are being assisted to die because they're depressed or, in one case, anorexic. So I think the slippery slope bit is to say we start at point A, but before we know it, we're at point B. Canada has had a law for about five years and they've changed it six or seven times already. So I think in the UK, that's one of the greatest concerns we have, that it's it's not something that once you pass the law, it sits there just the same. It doesn't. It, it gets changed. More and more disabled people get caught up in it. Yeah, okay. And um, to confirm your, your, your kind of greatest fear on the slippery slope, which, you know, is a horrifying prospect, is that the right to dies that are given in, in, at the, the beginning of the process will inexorably extend extend until even children you know, have, will yes. have the, the right to die. Yes, yes. Right. And I think subtly, one of the subtle changes that goes on is that assisted suicide, assisted dying becomes a treatment. It becomes – so in Oregon, another famous example is always Oregon from America that were back in the 90s, changed their laws um, – you see uh, 
an example of somebody who wanted to have chemotherapy to fight a cancer she was dealing with, but was told it was cheaper to take the, they wouldn't pay for it on insurance, but they would give her the drugs to end her life. So it's subtle. Some of this isn't black and white, which is why we're having this conversation, because if it was black and white, we'd, you, you know. So we're um, in the dangerous territory, because you know that the Oregon letter is controversial in itself. Because it, it is. It was within. It, it was one of twelve things that was suggested to a lady who was in that position, and I, yes. you know, I'm kind of. So please, let's not let's not fall into this trap where <laughs> we end up just you know. I mean, the whole thing. The, the podcast is called I don't know, exploring assisted dying without uh, the, the shit slinging, and you know, I think that that trading of what Kellyanne Conway would call alternative facts. Yeah, is it, yes. It, no, it, I, I I get that. What I suppose my my point is, and I totally, I you know, I'm not going to like you. I don't want to get into that. My facts are stronger than your facts stuff. I think what I'm suggesting is that once you pass a law, what seems to happen is that that law gets widened, the scope increases. There's evidence certainly for that, which I think we both agree, and there will be opportunities for abuse. At the moment, if there's abuses, they will be investigated by police, if you like. If it's an assisted suicide situation, then it's much more difficult to assess quite what was going on at the end of life for somebody. Was there duress? Were they being pressured? All those kinds of things. The concern about suicide being seen as a treatment, I think, is is a, a scary proposition, really. I think the slippery slope. Although I understand why it works for, for you and your, your campaigning, is a really, really poor and unhelpful analogy. I understand it's, it's powerful. You know, it's, it's, it creates a, a powerful mental sort of frame. I, I think what happens, I think, I mean, if you look at other things like perhaps abortion and capital punishment, is what generally happens is society has a conversation, uh, comes to a position, makes a law. Um, puts in the, the, the kind of the safeguards around that law and then it sits and sees if it thinks that is right. Now, if society wants to change it again, it has to go through that entire process again. So what I'm seeing in my head is it's much more of a, a kind of slider that, that is across a spectrum, yeah, like it was on your hi-fi or something like that, where you can move the dial across. And society each time makes a choice. And I don't think it's inevitable. And is it all right to be a bit irreverent? Yeah, but I don't, I don't think it's inevitable that, you know, if we have a very limited uh, assisted dying law for the terminally ill, men- mentally competent, et cetera, that at some point in the future, we'll be able to wake up in the UK and you've got a toothache and you'll, nip, you'll pop down the boots for a prescription and bump yourself off. And I also <laughs> don't think, I mean, and this is sort of a more a darker point on the same side, that it will lead to a form of, I don't know, genocide. Um, um, in in society, I I just I don't you know if we look at other things that are life and death that we have dealt with in society, and I think abortion is a good one, capital punishment is another one. We've sort of come to a place of accommodation. Not everyone is happy with it. It, it may have you know flaws that scare us, but we're as a whole we're we're okay with the, the where we got to on those points. I think we could do the same with assisted dying. I think there's a there's an issue here, which is that um, how much we value the life of the individuals that we're thinking about when we're having this conversation. So 
what we know is all the evidence that we have as disabled people is that we are very often seen to be living lives which are not valuable, which are not. In fact, I'll be blunt, we are expensive. And some of the uh, arguments about assisted suicide have been certainly in Canada and recently in Scotland have been talked about from an economic point of view. It is expensive to look after me and you. It is much cheaper to allow us to, to, to die. Um, and I think that argument is one that we're seeing increasingly used because partly because of where we are economically now. When the decision makers are looking at me and you, and they're generally not disabled, they're looking at me and you, they're going, God, dear, oh, dear, what a struggle. It would be much kinder for them if. And, you know, at the moment you are feeling, I think, partly, that there will come a point where you want that to be the case. Yes, I want to leave. I do not want to carry on living. There may come a time in my life where I feel that. At the moment that's not certainly the case. But I don't want the judgments from doctors, lawyers, legislators to be based on the premise that our lives are worth less in some ways. It's a kindness to help us. And I think that's one of the sort of subtle things that goes on in this discussion, really. And, of course, it goes without saying. You know, I, I hope it goes without saying, neither would I, you know. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, a, it's a daft thing to even have to, to um, articulate. Well, you will have experienced more than I have the fact that one day you were not a disabled person and you were doing whatever, and now people will look at you. I'm sure you've experienced people looking at you where you feel they're seeing you very differently. You're still the same bloke. Well, I have that, and that, that long list of, you know, that what, compared to yours, I have a short list of anecdotes, and you'll have hundreds, I guess, where, you know, where you, where you see the, um, the inequality in, um, um, in practice and you feel it. But I'm, yes. But... Um, but I'm, I'm sort of back, back to the point on this, you know, when it comes to money and stuff at the moment, I think that we're, um, I mean, I'm a, like a little GDP dynamo locally. <laughs> People running, I keep all sorts of equipment and going over the places like a circus. And I think one of the problems with end of life per se outside this argument, and I think it was voiced by the Lancet Commission um, on Tuesday on, on dying. And this is not about the assisted dying debate, is that we've, as a country, We've lost our way in dying anyway, and we have mm. over-medicalized dying, and we keep, but very often, just because we have the capacity to keep people alive, we do, and that's yeah. not always the right. It's not. It's not in the benefit of the of the patient, and it's becoming broader than the assisted dying debate. I think as medical technology advances, at some point we're going to have to understand what we want from death, and yes, and, and that's. That's going, I mean, this is slightly over and above the, our debate about whether someone like me should and, and the risks of that. But the whole, the whole thing for me is in a mess. And I don't think the, the conversation, which is um, the judgment is that to help me, we will definitely put you at risk, is necessarily the right one. A bit like palliative care. I sort of think what we should be trying for is and, an and, a choice that's kind of humane and compassionate for me that doesn't put grave risks in for other vulnerable groups. I suppose you're, I mean, just to pick up on your first point about, you know, the way we look at death and so on, um, there is no doubt that 
uh, we should respect patients' wishes. And and if if somebody's reached a point in their life where treatments are merely just keeping them around, uh, then the choice they have is to say, I don't want them in it, or the families do. I, I totally get that. And I don't want to, like you, I think that's a slightly different argument. I think what um, one of the most well-rehearsed arguments in this discussion, which we haven't touched on yet, is the relationship between the patient and the doctor. And I've had uh, 50, 60 years of believing that every time I saw the doctor, what they wanted to do was make sure I didn't die. That was their, their reason, was to make me keep me as well as possible and, and treat my conditions. Um, if I now am, am not quite so sure about the doctor's dedication to that particular cause, um, what does that do to the, you know, the patient patient doctor relationship and you know that's a well rehearsed argument but i think it's one that we can't we can't ignore and many many doctors as you will know from your studies many doctors are opposed to this and would refuse to 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 ex you know would be, want to um, i think i can't remember what the expression is but they can they step out that's the way yeah yeah and if doctors were here now they'd have something to say about that i suspect this is opening up some of the really there are really grey areas and, and um, uh, around this debate that are quite hard to, to pin down. I mean, a couple of things to chuck in from my perspective. I think the Hippocratic Oath is often mentioned about doctors doing yes. no harm. And I think that by and large is kind of out of fashion. And, and what's more used now is the International Doctors' Oath they draw from the, um, the kind of Geneva Convention. And that's about working for the well-being of my patient. And I think that particularly as medically, medical science advances, to be able to do stuff for us and to us um, um, at the end of our lives, that becomes really benefit, relevant. Because what will be to my benefit in my last six months if I'm living, maybe if, even if they can take the pain away and some of the anxiety, if I'm still living in anguish, what is the point and um, to what end um, is that doctor helping me? Yes, but I suppose being the doctor, I'd say, well, what right do I have to make that judgment of your life? I mean, I think what we both agree is that it would be your family, your closest, nearest and dearest, who would recognise more than a doctor would just how much you're going through or whatever. I would, at least I'd feel that about myself. I think the thing about uh, what we're in some ways talking about is the ideal world, aren't we? Where doctors have the time and the, uh, you know, the, the, the ability to sit and be with their patients and really get to know them. I don't think in general now, I think if doctors get five minutes to themselves, they're doing well. I think Phil, that if I, you know, and it is an if, if I retain my mental competence through, yeah. through the illness, I think there's about 50% chance of that. You know, I, I will, and I've been told that the end is nigh you know, properly nigh, um, um, I will know if life is intolerable, whether there's any value. And um, I would go through a process of talking to doctors and psychologists and, you know, doing the paperwork to, to get a legal view on that. Um, uh, if it was that bad and if it wasn't, I'd have the reassurance that was in place in, in, the, in the worst eventualities. Mm. Again, I understand your argument about, you know, this posing a risk to wider, uh, to, to aged or, or vulnerable groups. Um, but I still think it should be an and, and I shouldn't be de denied choice 
on 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 the hypothesis put forward. Important though it is, if we can find a way of establishing the right safeguards. Yes, and I think that's one of the big issues. It's certainly one of the biggest issues we ever talk about is the safe are the safeguards safe. Our position on that is generally that they're not at the moment. That doesn't mean to say they won't come a day when they are safe and we agree that they're safe. I think the other big issues which we've touched on is that when you're feeling when you're talking about or thinking about uh your the end of your life was everything that could be done done did you have all the care you know we talked about palliative care we talked about social care i mean one of the biggest reasons given by most people who apply for assisted suicide in other areas is they don't want to be a burden well you know being a burden comes in many forms as we both know but if if i'm given the support i need and the care i need and my family and my friends aren't having to do all sorts of things for me that should be done in other ways then that burden thing drops away to some degree and I'm making a decision that's a bit more based on the realities of me now, not on what I'm thinking about everybody else. I think back in 2019 when I started thinking about this and it's why I kind of gathered the the crowdfunder to go to the High Court about trying to have some evidence-based process, the, that was, the burden issue was very much, um, it was in my mind and I won't hide the fact that, you know, there is an aspect, I think, in probably in in disability with burden and illness with burden, I think now feeling the late stages of a, a of a, a terminal illness that's just a, it's a horrible disease, and mm. um, that's that's no longer the case. The simple fact is that I'm in a vessel that is most of its compartments are on fire, and um, it's a it's a, a horrendous process to get through the night. And I might have years to go. And I'm not six months, you know, I've, I've got more than six months almost certainly left. And, I, you know, God willing, I'll have, I'll have more, more years ahead to be able to do stuff. But um, it's a terrible, awful disease. And I'm not thinking about burden anymore because I think in a way you, your mind drifts around to just your own personal protection at, um, at the end of life. And, um, uh, you know, when... When the whole vessel's on fire, at some stage you want to, you're going to want to put that fire out. Mm-hmm. You know, in which yeah. I have the physical disabilities um, and you know wheelchair bound, but the vascular system, the respiratory system, the immune system, the digestive system, the, autonom- the autonomic systems are all going to pot at the same time. The disability and the burden that causes actually sort of becomes secondary. You know, it's suddenly I'm. I'm I'm in fact the palliative care doctor said it to me on Tuesday. He kind of and it was it, this kind of hit me between the eyes. I was really surprised by the thing, what he said. He sort of said something on the lines of, "Are you at the stage now where being disabled is not your big problem?" And I, I and I was surprised by it. And I said, "You know, that, that's kind of exactly where I'm at. It's with being ill that's my problem now, and everything that comes with it. The disability is." very awkward but it's the illness that's murder and it is a, a form of torture and i'm not yes. and i'm still able to as you can see we're having this conversation control and um um uh, enable a life but it's not going to be long before i can't and what i see coming is is really dreadful phil i'm feeling it physically and we're not in the same room you know i get i i get some of your 
you're explaining it very well. Um, I suppose it's, I can't, I can't make that go away. You know, that's not, it's not something that any of us can make go away. Um, the question is, is there more that we could be doing that would make your quality of life better? And I think if the answer to that is no, um, then you, you, you know, all the care and support you need is there and it's not changing this I'm on fire metaphor. I suppose the, the, the issue then is at what point does your condition, this disease you have, to enable you to be assisted to die, become a terminal illness? Because this is one of the other complications about, we talked a bit about the slippery slope idea. Well, many of the disabled people that want assistance to die are not covered by the present suggestions in the Meacher Bill because they're not terminally ill. They have motor neurone disease or they have uh, cystic fibrosis or they have whatever they have. Terminal illnesses, then when these laws are being talked about, are generally thought to be things like cancer, where it's clear that somebody's life is going to be short. No, the other thing that you and I both know because we've been around the subject is deciding when somebody is going to die is very, very difficult. <laughs> you know, nobody knows. The only certain thing is if they decide to end it themselves. I, I, just jumping in, Phil, sorry, I, I felt compelled to do this. You know, motor motor neurone is a about as terminal illness um, diagnosis as you can get. Most people die within the first two years. I have gone on a long time to make it to seven, and probably if I made it to ten, I'll be only like like one in a hundred who who do that. And um, there's a there's a really blunt scoring mechanism they use where you start with forty eight points. I'm now down to twenty four points. And most consultants, I mean, I won't tell you this, I'm going to hear this in the back channels, know that when you get to a certain set of conditions and you're in your teens, that you're no longer viable. Yeah, you are, you're just waiting for the, the chest infection or the urinary infection and you might, you yeah. know, and, and you're being increasingly locked in by life. And some of the grave neurodiseases, you know, Huntington's is another and, and aspects of Parkinson's and some forms of MS you can be very clear about what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Yeah. So as much as I would love to, to believe when a doctor says to me, you've got less than six months to live, that I will go on forever. They, they're, pretty, they're pretty good at this. And by that stage, I'm likely to be in a pretty parlous state. Yes, I suppose, I, I, I suppose the, the reason for, for, for raising that or, or just bringing it back to that was the fact that the law is shaped in such a way that somebody has to be able to say, at the moment anyway, and the wording of the current bill that is being debated, the Meech bill, uh, six months to live. So whilst you were told seven years ago you'd got motor neurone disease, they didn't say, and you'll be dead within six months. What they didn't know was when you would be, but they knew it would be certain. They just didn't know how long. So I, I understand that. And the personal pain and suffering that you've very, very, powerfully expressed in this conversation is very difficult to argue against. It's, it's when I'm thinking about a law which may well be open to abuse but was never framed for that reason. It was always framed with you in mind, not 
and I think that's one of the big dilemmas that this our conversation throws up for me. I can see from this that you are, and you know, your whole CV kind of um, shines a bit. That you are a humane and compassionate individual who has devoted his life to work for others. You know, um, almost like your own congregation of, of people. Um, um, and yet, in this podcast, I also I feel slightly responsible myself. Because there are many hundreds, probably a few thousand of people like me in the UK at this moment. And um, we have no safeguards. We have no protection. We, have, we are um, kind of, we, we are left hidden unless we go to Dignitas to do things ourselves in our way um, at, at home with no safeguards around us at all. And even if you go to Dignitas, which I think is a horrifying prospect personally, um, I wouldn't do it, but um, there are no real safeguards around that. The UK safeguards, half the people who go are investigated, their families are investigated, half aren't. But I think if we look at, I mean, I think one of the great fears um, that is part of this conversation, which we haven't touched on, is the fear of relatives and being prosecuted if they assist their loved one to die in some way. So, you know, you your your family help you to die, the police and then at the door and so on. I mean, the fact is they have not, where it's clear, and I think generally speaking, one kind of, there's evidence to show that it was, the, the reason the family acting the way it did was because they felt so, so worried about their relative. Um, no prosecutions result at all. There have been other cases where people were killed and where it was supposed to have been a mercy killing, but actually wasn't, and those people were prosecuted. So we do, I think one of the reasons that I, uh, I said this fairly early on in our conversation, that at the moment there would be an investigation and if I'd been killed unlawfully, that would be that would usually be found out. Um, but that gets in the way of your wish because what you want is help to die. <laughs> Because you've had enough. I, I know you, um, we, we could have been around this loop a little bit already that you sympathise a great deal for me, but you worry more for the people that you um, uh, want to protect. But I keep coming back to the point that we have to um, find a point where we can do both. I'm not going to go to Switzerland. Yeah. Um, my options, as I've talked through with the palliative care doctor just this week, are um, based on, you know, the accepted ones are based on series of events that might or might not come to happen. And I'm really unhappy with it. And I, although I've been going through the arguments, I, I'm not convinced that we can't create something good and not jeopardise other weak and vulnerable groups. Well, that, that for me is where we both agree completely because I think it is not not Dead Yet UK, the organisation I re represent, are not opposed to suicide. Let's be clear about that. We're not saying that people shouldn't kill themselves. I mean, I personally think that's terrible that somebody would want to do that. Um, but, you know, this conversation we've had, it's to anyone listening to you can understand why you are thinking suicide is a good idea. You know, if they don't get that, then I don't know what they've been listening to. But I still would want, if it were me, to be sat next to you saying, come on, there's got to be something else. You know, this is – so having said that, if at some future time 
we can find a way of making it possible for those who really do believe that the end, they, they, they want to end this, their life, but others are not at risk of a law that in some ways doesn't protect them adequately, then I think we'd probably be on the same page. I don't think we're opposed to suicide per se. Obviously, other groups are. The religious groups, for example, do not accept suicide as a, a way to end one's life. But but I've always felt, you know, as a social worker, um, my remit is to try and help people. And if people are so, so distressed that all they can think about doing is killing themselves, then I feel from the other side of that that I have to do more to try and help them see that's not the answer. And in your case, the end is inevitable for you. But what you're wanting is to be helped to, to, to for that to be at a time of your choosing and in the most pain-free, frightening way possible. Um, and at the moment, the law stands in your way. I want to, um, don't want to shorten my life for a minute. I would like to shorten no. a painful death, an unpleasant yes. death. And that is, that's really where, where I'm at. And I, one stage through that, Phil, I would like to reach through um, um, the, the, the Zoom lens and, and, and giving you a hug. Yeah, because <laughs> I mean it because it's, it's kind of important that people who are um, we're set against each other in the media um, when this debate comes to you know House of yes. or whatever. You know, yeah. I have to look angry, and they say, "Can't you just get on the ventilator and look forlorn?" And you've got to look, you know, sort of something, and like you're given a placard about about yes. life, and <laughs> yes. it's just so wrong that we are used. And also, it's a crappy, it's a crappy, useless debate at the moment, which. You know, if it, if the the choreography around it by the media media is so rubbish. If it was on Strictly, even Motsi would tear it apart. Yeah, it's awful, awful stuff. I chair an organisation called the Research Institute for Disabled Consumers. We have a panel of two thousand seven hundred disabled people, and their whole remit is to make sure that products and services are designed so that they work for disabled people. It's a simple thing, nothing complex. What you and I are talking about now is the fact that dis- disabled people are generally ignored when decisions about their lives are being discussed. We have a slogan, nothing about us without us. So if the government of the day and the lawyers and everybody else want to debate assisted suicide, then we should be in the room and we should be part of the conversation that leads to something which you and I then would agree is acceptable to both sides of this conversation, i.e. that terminally ill people are helped to die in the most dignified way possible and that those of us who don't want to die, uh, even though we're severely disabled or ill, uh, are protected. I think that is possible if the conversation involves us. What you and I are doing today is recognising there's a lot of common ground. I want to help you. I don't want to stop you. Uh, I could, if I was in my gift, of course, you'd be cured tomorrow, but that ain't going to happen. So you know, what are the next however many years you've got look like? And when the moment comes, how do we help you decide what you want to do? Whatever that decision is, doesn't risk the other 10 million people who are labelled with a disability label and that everybody generally thinks their lives are miserable and horrible and all that kind of stuff. All right, then, Phil. So as a final sort of concluding question, it's sort of everything and nothing. What role do you think that evidence should play in this debate and how much should, be about, should it be about principles? Oh, God. Always saved the last question. Made the best question for the last. Um, 
I suppose what I've tended to do in this conversation with you is to to use both, I guess, the principles, the sanctity of life in the sense that you and I mean that, not the religious overtones thing, but the, the fact that we should do everything in our power to make sure that everybody who lives in our society has access to the best of everything, care, social care, treatment, employment, whatever it is. Their lives are fulfilled. Their lives have meaning. They're valued and so on. That's a principle for me. The evidence side of it says we're miles away from that. And and based on what we know now, I suppose, basing a, a change in law on the evidence that we have currently would worry me that the principles I've just articulated would be compromised. I, I want to live in a world where you and I are valued and where you can end your life at a time and we all are there knowing that that was the right thing for you and no one else is at risk. All right, let's, 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 I'll, I'll finish this then and by coming back to you with something controversial. I don't want to stick it at you, but <laughs> I don't want to be discriminated against. You know, how, how, no. how on earth can I say that to you who spent a career fighting that? I feel incredibly discriminated against at the moment. And the other thing is, when it came to the court case that we put together for the High Court, asking the judges to review the evidence and then asking the government to provide their own evidence, and yes. the, the court said no. Um, yeah. uh, and it was a procedural thing. And, you know, all these things often tied up by procedural things. But, um, yeah. Yes, which does leave you with a nasty taste in your mouth. Um, I think the, the, way that, the way forward is for both sides of this conversation to do what we're doing, <laughs> which is to sit down and talk about it and see if there's a way through um, with us from my side of this discussion saying that, you know, we the, the services available for severely, severely disabled and terminally ill people are disgraceful and we, we've got to do something about that. And I suppose where I'm coming from, Phil, is that until that's done, a change in the law from where I'm sitting would be dangerous. Okay. But – that isn't that isn't that we would be implacably opposed for it forever because we we aren't. It's getting these other things sorted first. Yeah, and I and I, would, I don't want to. If I I would want to give you the last word, but I think we're never. Obviously, we can we we can strive for good and probably never get perfect in all all aspects of society. I hear sure. exactly what you're saying about things need to be better. Our palliative care system, wonderful though it is. It seems utterly wrong that it's largely charitably, charitably funded and distributed in you know, bits and pieces all around the country. Totally agree with that. But I'm glad that you are saying that more discussion from the middle is a place that you would like to be involved in. Absolutely. No question. I think all of us who, whatever side of this particular discussion we sit, the only way forward is for us to come together and see if there's a way through it. Is there a an acceptable process that, that means that people are safe, but people also have. I mean, you. you I'll, I'll finish at this point. You, you, the big, the horns of the dilemma I'm on in this conversation with you. You've you've mentioned it, and that is your discrimination point. I am discriminated against. Your personal autonomy is being denied you because the law won't allow it. And in your case, you feel that as discrimination, and I understand why. 
it's 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 i can't answer that question let's finish there then <laughs> how, about, how about we we finish there and i say phil friend you've been splendid we've not agreed with each other on everything um but it's been lovely for you to reach out and um if nothing else we've got a kind of demonstration haven't you that it doesn't always have to be shouted no 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 no, no not at all but i'll see you with me placard you know outside parliament whenever yeah. you're ready Tell you what, I'm, I'm done with someone saying, can you just put that ventilator on, please, Because and look forlorn. I just think it's an insult. <laughs> I do. I really do. I know. I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, I like the. I like your description of that because it is so true, you know. I, I should have tattoos across my forehead saying, I hate everybody, and you've got to be looking all pathetic, and yeah, exactly. away we go. Yeah. <laughs> I found the conversation really interesting because there there was very little that he said that I could disagree with you know the the fact that we it's not so much that people are disabled because of actual um physical disabilities that they have but as a country we disable them because of how we set up systems and you know palliative care isn't where it needs to be lots of the support isn't where it needs to be um perceptions of disabilities aren't where they need to be one thing i was really interested about is that i think if i was in phil's position and had been disabled most of all nearly all my life i could see myself i think being a person who opposes a change in the law but having listened to him and me talk about my situation, he then expressed the same thing, that he could exactly see why I wanted to have a choice, an option at the end of my life. And to me, that thing's, that, that suggests that we're on, we have some real opportunity here. If, if two people who are right on the opposite ends, ends of the debate can have a good discussion, really understand each other's views and why we have them, there is, there is a, something to be solved there. One particular line that he said towards the end of the conversation stood out to me, which is um, that your, as in you, Phil, your your personal autonomy is being denied. And that was a real point that he couldn't um, align because his view is very much um, that all, everybody um, should have this this um, autonom- autonomy to choose. And that's fundamental to his belief about why we need to look at how we um, treat disabled people but he couldn't align that his his understanding that you would want you should have the right to decide for yourself um, with this sort of need to protect more vulnerable people from potential abuses looking at a load of the principles that we agreed on which were obvious ones that everyone should have choice um, no one should be discriminated against that sort of thing um, that we share very similar values and I sort of think if we got down to the very practical, um, that's where we might find solutions, particularly if we involve the right people at the right time. Thanks for listening to Kill Phil. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions. Follow us on social media at Kill Phil Podcast or email killphil at jackandgrace.co.uk. See you soon.